I'm here with Dan Barry. Uh, Dan is a New York Times journalist. His newest book is This Land, America Lost and Found, which is published by Black Dog and Leventhal. He's the author of uh, four other books, including The Boys in the Bunkhouse, Servitude and Salvation in the Heartland, which was reviewed in Commonweal's August 4th, 2016 issue, and Bottom of the 33rd, Hope, Redemption, and Baseball's Longest Game. Dan, thank you for being here. Thank you very much, Dominic. Let's talk about This Land, which was uh, just published in the fall. It's a really beautiful book, compiling dozens of columns from 10 years writing the This Land column for the New York Times. How did the project come about, and how did the book end up coming about? Uh, do you mean how, how, did the, how did the column begin? Yeah. Sure. About 15 years ago, I was writing the storied About New York column for the New York Times, and uh, it was really a dream job. In the course of that, uh, Hurricane Katrina occurred, devastating the Gulf Coast. And I prevailed upon my editors to uh, send me down there. And so I spent a lot of time in New Orleans and along the Gulf Coast chronicling what had happened. And it kind of broadened my worldview beyond the five boroughs. And I, I guess it filled me with some wanderlust. And so when I came back, the national editors and I got together and said, well, what if we tried to do an About New York-like column for the entire nation? It's an absurd endeavor and it's an absurd idea, but we, we decided to give it a shot. And uh, over a few drinks, we agreed to do it and we gave it the name of this land. And then beginning in January of 2007, I pretty much hit the road. You were on the road uh Almost every week, I think you said? Uh, certainly in the first couple of years, it was crazy. I was working uh, with the great photographer Angel Franco, and every Monday morning, pretty much, we would begin our week at Newark International Airport and fly to New Mexico or to California or to Indiana and um, find some story that we thought could be epiphanic in some way. And then we would come back maybe on the Thursday or the Friday and I would write the column and Franco would file his photographs. And then on Saturday, I would begin looking for where might we go on Monday. And I would say, geez, we were in New England last week. Why don't we try to go to the Midwest this week? And also there, there was all sorts of calculations in my head, not only making sure that we moved around the country, but also that the the types of stories, the types of columns changed, that they weren't always happy or sad or poignant or filled with rage, um, that there was a mix that kind of reflected the many moods of this country. So certainly for the first couple of years, I was uh, on the road more than I was at home, much to the delight of my family. I'm being a little flip, but it was, it was a lot, a lot of travel and a lot of pressure, yeah. You know, I'm interested in what you said about the idea of trying not to always have a column that was poignant or that was rageful or that was some other particular mood. And in fact, the the setup in the book, the columns are grouped under various section headings that seem to try to express a, a, a variety of the moods maybe you wanted to capture. Headings like change, hope, intolerance, grace, and others. Are you aware when you're in the process of interviewing or when you're writing or whenever you're even envisioning a piece like this, how the piece might 
fit under a descriptor like this, or did this come about later? Uh, that came about later. No, when when I guess the process would be finding something that I thought was interesting or surprising to me, and therefore I thought I could make it surprising for the reader, something that reflected who we were. And sometimes we are funny, and sometimes we are wrongheaded, and sometimes we're angry. And so the way it would work is, if it was interesting to me, I would go there and then try to figure out how best to tell the story and changing up every week the tonality of it, the mood of it, so that it wasn't predictable. And you and I have known columnists over the years who, whose work you could predict. You, you know, it would, be, it would be repetitious in its mood, and I didn't want to do that. Would you have, you'd have an idea of where you might want to head or who you might want to talk to. And how did these ideas come to you? How, how did they come to your attention? I mean, I know you're a reporter by, by training and by trade. Is it just a reporter's instinct or how are, how are you finding out about these people? You know, I've been a reporter now uh, for 35 years or more. And what it, I think the challenge for me and for any reporter, quite frankly, is to remain ever curious, to always be questioning and to be thinking about, geez, would that make a good story? So there were a couple of ways I would approach it. I have a fairly fevered mind. And so I'm the kind of guy who would say, who's alive from the movie The Wizard of Oz? Is anyone still alive? And I would do a little research. And then I'd find out that the, the actor who played the coroner in the Wizard of Oz, was still alive. And uh, I tracked him down to a, an assisted living facility down near Jacksonville, Florida, and called him up. And he was delighted to uh, have uh, Franco and I visit him. So that's an example of just being curious about something. Then, more often, though, I would say, geez, I haven't been to Iowa lately. I haven't been to New Mexico ever What's going on there? And so what I would do is go to the newspaper websites of these states. And then if, say, it was uh, Illinois, I wouldn't go to the website for the Chicago Tribune. I would go to a much smaller newspaper, maybe the paper in, uh, in uh, let's say, Champaign or, or Peoria. And then even then, I would look at the headlines, I suppose, but I would begin to look at the community briefs the little news briefs, the police blotter section, and just to get a sense of the chatter of a community and see if there was something that I could tease out. And so an example of that was seeing a, um, a breakfast at an American Legion in uh, the bottom of Arizona for a woman who was joining the army. She was 18 years old and she had just gotten a scholarship from the army, a college scholarship from the army for signing up. And that was the only way she would get to college. And so there was a, a function for her at the American Legion. And then a motorcycle entourage would escort her to Las Vegas, which was about 90 miles north or so, where she would catch her flight to Fort Hood in Texas. And I saw this in a little community news item. And I called up Franco on a Saturday. Uh, this is the truth. I called up Franco. I said, 
we got to go to uh, Southern Arizona. There's a woman joining the army. He said, okay, bro, let's go. And uh, we were there, I think it was on a Tuesday morning, and we were there at the American Legion. And we we followed the motorcycle escort all the way to Las Vegas and saw this woman who, you know, she was 18. Her Her senior prom was just a couple of months earlier. And here she was in the teeth of the war going off to Fort Hood. So that's a, that's an example of how I would find a story. Sure, sure. You know, it leads me kind of to my next question. You know, your your columns are compact, yet at the same time, they're really quite capacious in what they expressed about, well, human nature, about the United States, about a lot of things. Uh, do they begin as much longer pieces that then you have to whittle down? You know, I, I've already asked you about, I guess, your reporting process, but what happens when you get to the writing of it? (laughs) There's a lot of blood on the floor. Yeah. (laughs) What happens is usually I will try five, six, or a dozen different attempts at a beginning to the story, because I believe that particularly in newspaper journalism, the reader is giving me maybe five or six seconds before he or she will move on to the next story. She's already she's already disinclined to read my story. So it's with the power of the language and the imagery in that first paragraph or first two paragraphs that I begin to seduce or my only opportunity to seduce. So I spend a lot of time in the lead and then write it through. Uh, you know that uh, that what I try to do, Dominic, is try to create topspin so that if I've grabbed you in the first paragraph or two with this nonfiction short story, that you will, that enough topspin will be created in the writing so that you will join me all the way to the end. And then when I get to the end, I don't want to end the piece with a lazy quote which is what you would find in most newspaper stories, like the reporter doesn't know how to end the story, so they throw in a quote and call it a day. I don't like to do that. I like to have some kind of ending that means something. And occasionally it is a quote. Sometimes there's a a quote that is like a fist to the nose. So in the writing process, most of these columns were about 1,200 words or so. So I knew... You know, I knew the box in which I had to perform. And so in the process, I would whittle it down, whittle it down and kill my darlings, as they say, until it was compact and it had, a, it had a, an enticing beginning and a satisfying end. Or that was my goal. I'm not saying I always achieved it, but that's what I was shooting for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I love the way you put that, that use of that word topspin. And certainly I think, uh, uh, you know, the endings of your pieces uh, too, they remind me of the way a, a, a writer of short fiction would approach a story and how to complete a story. I think it was Tobias Wolf said something like, you know, a, a short story that shuts down tighter than a bank at nighttime. And I think a lot of uh, your pieces do wrap up that way. Oh, thank you. It's a great line. I've got a few favorites from the book. And I hope you don't mind if I ask you about a couple of them. One was uh, headlined Death in the Chair, uh, Step by Remorseless Step. It was written in 2007. It was about the electric, uh, electrocution of a confessed murderer in Tennessee. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about that piece? Sure. I really feel strongly the mission of the journalist to bear witness. 
the bear witness. I have no particular desire to see someone else die. In fact, I have no desire, really, except I felt the duty, really, to witness an execution because people were being killed in my name, effectively, and in the name of, of our country. And so um, I applied to <laughs> – there were several executions that were in the, in the offing, and I applied to attend uh, several in different states. And Tennessee was uh, the first to say, yes, we have a seat for you. And normally an execution these days would be by lethal injection, and that's a controversial – manner of death, but that was the norm at the time. But the fellow who was about to be executed in Nashville, his crime had occurred long enough ago that he was given the option of of manner of death that was available at the time of the commission of his crime. And that included uh, the electric chair. And he opted for the electric chair, which I hadn't counted on. And so you know, with great dread, we went down to Nashville, and a week before his scheduled execution, Angel Franco, uh, the photographer, and I spent some time with him to get to know him. I thought I owed him at least that. If I were to write about his death, I should know him a little bit in life. And we wrote a piece about that, and then the following week, almost to the day, I returned, and I witnessed his electrocution. And then. Uh, it was it was early in the morning. It was about one o'clock in the morning. I went back to my uh, hotel room and uh, I had a uh, I had a glass of bourbon. And uh, then uh, the next day, I began to write it. And you know, I thought that the way to write it to tell you that I'm against capital punishment and to get all preachy about it would do a disservice to the moment. It would be way more powerful to to strip away the language to kind of a, the naked truth of it. And uh, what happens is, Dominic, you're in a very small room and a curtain, you're facing a curtain, and then suddenly the curtain lifts almost as though you're at a, at a private movie theater, that you're being um, shown a, a, a private screening. And there's, the, there's Daryl Holton looking right at you, and he's only about 15 or 20 feet away. And so I wrote what I saw. And, uh, you know, there were biblical moments because um, the, the uh, corrections officers had to get on their hands and knees and wash his, uh, effectively wet his ankles to improve the, the, uh, you know, the conductivity and also to take the sponge and squeeze it over his, his freshly shaven head again to increase the conductivity. And to me, that was very, very biblical. It reminded me of the washing of the feet. And then, you know, they, they electrocute him. And there's no, there's no ceremony. There's no nothing. Uh, you know, you're sitting there kind of stunned by what you've just seen. And then over the loudspeaker in this little room, it basically says, the time of death, 125, please exit. And you'd stand up and you walked out. And I went right for my bourbon, sadly. Yeah, and now it's a very, uh, very powerful piece, and uh, I, I certainly was struck by the way you approached it and the, the way you uh, just described it. Uh, there's another uh, piece in the book, Dan, that 
also appealed to me in sort of a different way and not to use that word poignant because I know you weren't necessarily striving for that, but this is a piece that was headlined planning a path through life on the walk to school about 15 year old St. Louis high school student named Janae. And there's a, a great line in the piece and I, I don't want to give too much of it away where I believe you ask her, she's a basketball player and you, she says she's a guard and you say, which kind? And she says both shooting and point. It was just a really lovely moment. Um, could you talk about that piece? And, and I guess a couple follow-up questions. Um, do we know what happened to Janae since? And, and without revealing too much about your, your private life, we're both fathers of daughters who have gone through high schools. And did that impact your writing of this piece at all? Uh, absolutely. When I wrote this in 2007, I had uh, my, my older daughter was 10. I had seen an article about uh, the profoundly flawed educational system in St. Louis and St. Louis, the public school system. And, and, and St. Louis isn't alone in, in, in the failure of the, a city's educational system. But I, I began to think about this. So this was this is one of those conceptional columns, Dominic, where I just imagined myself there. And I just had a thought, maybe there's a, a girl like Nora, or maybe a few years older, a couple of years older, with all the hopes and dreams of a kid. So all I wanted to do was take a walk to school with a young girl who has the same hopes and dreams, say, as my daughter. And so um, with a little digging around, I, I came across this high school and I came across this neighborhood of St. Louis and I, I finally found Janae and I asked her whether I could just walk to school with her or, or rather watch her walk to school. And she said, fine. And, you know, her she leaves at around seven o'clock in the morning. Her mother is already out of the house by two and a half hours working because she drives a school bus. And Janae is about 14. And those of us with children know what their book bags are like. They weigh a ton. And here's this kid carrying a ton of books on her back. And then she begins her walk. And I, I just described the, the the houses with the broken windows. You know, some houses are fine and some are abandoned. Clearly, this is a crime-ridden neighborhood, very poor. And this is what Janae is walking through as she's just going to school. Then as she's walking, I fill you in on her backstory, on her dreams, on the neighborhood. As she's walking, the high school principal beeps his horn because he came from the same neighborhood and and he's riding around making sure that kids are going to school. That's what he's doing. And then finally, she's received into the school. And there's a blessing in that. And is this something that you do we know what might have happened to her since then? Or is there? Yeah, no, I know that she, she, she wound up going to college uh, in the Midwest. And she played some basketball. I tried reaching her a few months ago. And I was unable to do so. But uh, I do know that she did. She did go to college. I've mentioned a couple of the pieces I've liked, and, and I'm wondering if you could just, uh, you, you mentioned the coroner from The Wizard of Oz. Was there, were there any other uh, truly memorable, well, I guess they're all memorable and notable encounters, uh, but what, which of them maybe stuck out for you a little more than others? I guess um, 
an example of the kind of story that I'd be interested in that perhaps nobody else would be interested in is uh, seeing a community brief story in the Omaha, Nebraska paper about a small town called Hupper, maybe a couple of thousand people. And it's one of these places that used to be a place. Mm. And recently, the Department of Transportation had, had constructed a bypass. And so the, the main highway was now bypassing entirely the small town of Hupper. And so that kind of intrigued me because in this small uh, news brief that I came across, the town had chipped in to build an obelisk, you know, uh, like a 25-foot tall obelisk that they would plant beside the bypass with the name of their town spelled down the central column, Mm H-O-O-P-E-R, and it was to me, it was a way of a town, of a people saying, you know, as, as we move forward into the 21st century and, and things are moving so quickly and changing so rapidly, here was a little place saying, no, we're still here. We're still here. Uh, we still matter. And I broke that story <laughs> because no one else, no one else would write it or, or would think to write it. But I thought there was a moment in a in a small town building this this monument, not out of pride, I suppose, but rightful pride. You know, one of my first jobs was as an intern for then Governor Mario Cuomo, and I had to look at local newspapers from around New York State to do clips, right, to, to find mentions of his name. But I found myself just absorbed in these local newspapers, and these things are, are, are going away. How do you feel about that, having been in journalism for, for so many years? And what do you think the state of journalism is, and, and where are things headed in this regard? Right. So as, as I said earlier, I'm a, I'm a newspaper journalist, for better or worse. And so I think it's a double-edged sword because I, I traffic in cliches. I just want to use a cliche. It's a double-edged sword, Dominic. Yeah. I'm glad you put that in. <laughs> uh, I coined that phrase. <laughs> on, on, on one hand, we have so much information available to us and very, very easily. With a tap here and a click there, we have the world before us. That's great. Okay, Mm -hmm. we we can talk perhaps some other time about, you know, how we access that information and whether we seek out information that that merely reinforces our own biases. But the information is out there. But on the other hand, this has meant a decline in local journalism and local newspaper journalism. And that's more than just some crotchety, ink-stained wretch reminiscing about the old days around the glue pot. I'm I'm getting beyond that. There's a real downside to this, and that is an informed public about local politics. When I when I worked at small newspapers and I, I did, it was it was standard that around election time, every every candidate for the Board of Education or for the town council would come in and be grilled by the managing editor and uh, a roundtable of reporters. And the Q&A or the, the story would appear in the newspaper at the same length for that person's opponent. 
And then the newspaper may or may not make some kind of recommendation. But uh, if you disagreed with the newspaper's editorial on that race, at least you had a Q&A that allowed you to read what this candidate stood for. So now that those newspapers are going away, and they are going away, and they're being bought up by investors, uh, hedge funds and the like, and what they're doing is they're they're sapping those newspapers of their revenue and of their purpose. And so I worked at the Providence Journal from 1987 to 1995, and that was a great newspaper in a very news-heavy environment. And there were dozens and dozens of reporters and editors covering every inch of the smallest state in the union. Now that newspaper has maybe 15 reporters and it is not meeting the needs of, of the state in terms of uh, providing full information of, of local developments, but also of local politics and who your candidates are. That has a real effect on on the democracy of this country. And, and that's, that's something that needs to be reconciled. And I don't see any solution as yet. How do you feel the situation has compounded or actually maybe it's a, a, something of a totally different degree in nature, but we actually have a sitting president of the United States on a more or less daily basis demonizing the press. I mean, to me, this really does great damage to our civic life. As a journalist, and maybe in speaking with other journalists and colleagues, what do, what do you make of this? To this? This strikes me as a very potentially dangerous moment. It is a dangerous moment. And, and you know, it wasn't long ago that a gunman opened fire in a, uh, a newsroom in Maryland and killed several people. And if you're in daily journalism, I guarantee that you know a person who knew one of the people who was killed. And so I do. Uh, I knew uh, I'm very close friends with someone who knew several of those people who was, who, who were killed that day. So it's very raw and it's very familial. That's one, whether, whether you can make the connection that the president's language is allowing for that, you know, I think an argument could be made when he refers to, the likes of me as uh, an enemy of the people. I, I struggle with this. Uh, obviously, I don't see myself as an enemy of the people. I don't kiss my daughter in the morning and say, well, I'm off to my job as an enemy of the people. Uh, good luck in your math class today. I, I, you know, but by the same token, if I begin to like obsess over what the president is saying to me, like some schoolyard bully. I don't want to lose focus of what my central mission is, which is to continue to inform, which is to continue to illuminate, which is to continue to point out when a politician says something that is absolutely false, that I, that I point that out, that that is false. What that person just said in our name in that office is false. That's what I need to focus on rather than whether my feelings are hurt by being called an enemy of the people, though I do understand it, is, uh, it enters dangerous terrain and, and may incite people to, to violence. I think about, am I an enemy of the people? But by the same token, am I a friend of the people? I struggle with that thought. And so what I landed on is I am of the people. I am of the people. 
And I am trying to inform the people as best as I can with my limited skills and with uh, with newspapers and, and with digital media. So getting caught up in the enemy of the people is a distraction for me from the central purpose. The way you sort of mentioned being of the people, uh, you speak even the way you speak and the way you use that term, you seem uh, to me anyway to to be the descendant or the the heir to sort of a, a great journalistic tradition, and it makes me wonder who are some of the journalists that either influenced you or who you grew up reading or who you sort of tend to want to emulate if if you still do after thirty five or forty years on your own in your own career. Uh, sure. There was a there was a great journalist in the in the in the twenties and thirties named Joseph Roth in in Germany and in Paris who was pointing out what was to come. He was he was uh, he was sounding the alarm about uh, about Hitler and about the Nazis marching into uh, into the future. Here, I think about him. Uh, I think about uh, Dorothy Parker's use of language. You know, the simplicity of uh, and the impact of, of every word. Uh, the, the person who had the most influence uh, for me, no question, it would also be Pete Hamill, but it would mostly be Jimmy Breslin. And I know that Jimmy Breslin is a complicated guy. He's a flawed guy. But he was also a guy who embraced his flaws and reflected on them. Uh, right now, I'm editing a, uh, a volume of his work for uh, the Library of America, and I'm re- reading and rereading some of his works. And he was he was very much in touch with his Catholic faith. He was a, a, a daily communicant, and he struggled with his anger and with his ego at times, and 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 wrote about it and was and was it was uh, was candid about it. But beyond that, you know, he was a guy who embraced the notion of bearing witness. A lot of columnists could opine from their desks. He would he would walk up those steps at some tenement in the Bronx or go out to the Crown Heights riots or be there when, when Robert Kennedy was assassinated or be there to watch the, the gravedigger uh, uh, dig the plot for John F. Kennedy. I mean – the great journalism came from being there, and Breslin did it better than anybody else. Yeah, and Dan, just believe it or not, we might have people in our audience who are not familiar with Jimmy Breslin, so maybe you could just tell the folks who who he was and and who he worked for in New York. Yeah, sure. He was uh, he was uh, a guy from uh, Queens. He was born in the late 1920s, and he began working in journalism when he was in high school. Uh, working at the Long Island Press and and uh, back in the early 50s, and he was a sports writer. And then in the late 50s and early 60s, he began to gain acclaim because he was writing short stories. It would come to be called uh, the new journalism, but what he was doing, and he would often laugh at that. He would refer to Damon Runyon and, and uh, Westbrook Pegler, but he would also say, what about Charles Dickens? And so what he would do is he would go to places and describe them and give voice to people, oftentimes people who had no voice. So he then became uh, probably the best paid newspaper columnist in the country through the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and into the 90s. And he also wrote many, many books 
including one called the church that uh, the church that forgot Christ, which was his um, his critical look at the Catholic Church after the priest scandals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, uh, I guess it, it, it speaks to a certain time and a certain way of uh, journalism being practiced. But I I, I remember on more than one occasion uh, happening on Jimmy Breslin somewhere in the city in a subway station on, on the street at some event. Uh, but they are in the midst of things for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Really remarkable guy. Dan, I want to thank you for being with us. Dan Barry's new book is this land America lost and found. And the publisher is black dog and Leventhal. And I really recommend it. Dan, thanks again. Oh, thank you, Dominic, for having me. It was a lot of fun. Thank you.